another CRL? Yeah, right. This week, it's Revenge of the Tax Nerds. We'll be joined by Kate Watt and Anton Sabo to dive deep into what CRLs are and if they're a force for good. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 119. I am off uh, this Friday and Thursday when we typically record, so we're recording this on Tuesday. So if the city is planning to drop some big news bombs in the next four days, well, we won't know about it. Sorry. We'll catch up next week. Now it's time to burn it up in the rapid fire dome. An Edmonton man is $8,000 richer this week thanks to the sale of a thin piece of cardboard with a picture of a Pokemon printed on it. The cardboard has only collector's value because of the massive power creep in the trading card game, with the addition of V and V maxes to the game doing 200 damage in a move is really nothing surprising anymore. So original Charizards with only 120 damage, which requires a double energy discard on top of it, is absolutely paltry in comparison. Perhaps the 2022 Charizard card will sell for 8,000 Zimbabwe dollars instead. This week, Alberta has eased into step two of reopening, which involves additional businesses being allowed to operate, including gyms, for low-intensity activity. At the media availability, Premier Jason Kenney could be seen growing visibly frustrated at reporters, asking questions about facts and reasoning, eventually culminating in an angry outburst from the Premier saying, quote, fine, and we'll move libraries up from stage three so all you goddamn nerds have something else to do. The provincial government is currently debating a bill that would declare rodeo as Alberta's official sport. UCP MLA Muhammad Yassin unironically said on Monday, quote, rodeo is an important thread in the rich cultural fabric of our province, end quote. As he said this, he himself was weaving a sheet of red fabric, though apparently not understanding that the person holding the red sheet is supposed to attract the bull, not spew it. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by ATB. While the downturn is not over, ATB was built to help Albertans as they tried to rebuild and find their new normal. If you're wondering about how to manage your finances, rebuild emergency savings, or continue to save for your child's education, ATB can help. For answers to your questions and to learn more, visit atb.com. And joining us for our first segment, we'll get right into it because, boy, isn't it the funnest segment. We've got our two resident tax nerds back on the show. They were a blast last time, and we welcome back Kate and Anton to the show to talk to us all about CRLs. Kate, Anton, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Hi. We'll start off just right at the base. We'll, we'll get into the item in a moment. Council was talking about CRLs again this week, and in last week's show, I characterized CRLs as essentially just inventing some money. And some have said maybe that's not the most fair characterization. So can you, as if we were dumb, explain to us what exactly is a CRL and what does it do? I have tried to explain CRLs and people generally look blank at me. So I'm going to ask Anton, who is an excellent explainer, to take a run at this one. Sure, let's go ahead and take a crack. So CRLs are effectively the Alberta example of what we call tax increment financing. Tax increment financing is the bigger umbrella term used across North America to explain this kind of approach. And the CRLs are the Edmonton or the Alberta specific example. So what basically happens is within CRLs, we establish an area, we draw kind of a circle or a box around a certain part of town. 
and you set the assessment baseline. So what are the assessment values in the area where at that particular given time, that assessment value stays within the tax base. Uh, that assessment value is still used to calculate the tax rate and is still used. The revenue that comes from that assessment value still contributes towards the general tax levy to pay for general Edmonton services. However, any additional value that's uplifted past that baseline in future years, whether that be from market value increases or from growth, so growth is new construction, things along those lines, that value uplift uh, still has the same tax rate applied to it, but you don't use that value to to calculate the tax rate. And then that new assessment that you multiply the tax rate by is additional revenue that you're going to be applying within the area. Now, before that, of course, even takes place, the idea is you're going to make an investment in that area. So you would invest uh, a certain amount of funds, new capital projects, you're doing infrastructure investments, or you're investing in new construction so that you're catalyzing the area. And then from there, the idea is that, well, new construction will take place, and that new revenue will pay off the investment that you've made, right? So you're doing the upfront investment, and then over time, the new revenue that comes in as part of this tool will pay off the, the borrowing that you've made uh, in order to uh, catalyze the investment in the first place. And, and importantly for Alberta, the Alberta-specific example, the three CRLs that Edmonton currently has, we got extra tax on top of that uplift, right? In the form of the provincial education tax? Yeah, that's right. So that is really the the big cherry on top. And the reason that municipalities tend to go down a CRL route in Alberta is that when a CRL is created, it's created under sort of provincial legislation with the province giving it its blessing. And they agree to forego the, um, the education tax uplift, just as, you know, we would, Anton was just describing how the municipal uplift now gets directed straight to the CRL, the province actually also forgoes its education tax for that uplift and the municipality is allowed to sort of garner that and take it and put it into the, the CRL pool as well. So that in that way, it's the closest you would come to describing it as free money. Um, but what tax nerds like me and Anton like to uh, point out as often as we possibly can, there is no such thing as free money. So what happens on a provincial basis is Edmontonians or the Edmonton CRL uh, benefits at the expense of the rest of Alberta's provincial education property taxpayer. So I think it's fair to call it a subsidy. It's the rest of the province subsidizing that one area of Edmonton that's under the CRL. That would be fair. Yep. Okay, so now that we've got a baseline of what a CRL is, Mac, take us through what was council discussing this week. Right. Well, last week we heard about the three CRLs, Belvedere, the Quarters, and Downtown. And this week, Executive Committee had the opportunity to discuss potentially creating a new CRL. And the idea here uh, was a motion that Council had made, I believe, in October to see if a CRL could be part of the funding mix to help build the future LRT lines. We're making an investment in infrastructure, uh, as Anton said, and we expect that that's going to increase property values around the LRT. That's transit-oriented development. And council or executive committee had the bright idea to ask, why not use some of that to pay for the LRT construction or perhaps that and some of the operations? And uh, Anton and Kate, you were there to, at executive committee to tell them why that's not a good idea. And we would like to understand that uh, a little bit better. So what, what are the arguments against that idea? Right. So effectively what we pointed out to council or committee at that time was that the notion of investing 
growth revenue within a particular area is something that's entirely valid if that is the choice they want to make. They just simply do not require the tool to do that. So you did point out that the CRLs, uh, very good point, include that education tax revenue. Uh, however, in this case, they do not, right? That that's requires provincial approval. The province hasn't suggested that they're interested in pursuing additional CRLs. And so what's remaining to us is this conversation, well, should we just still draw a box and just use municipal tax revenue? So what we were simply pointing out to council was, if you want to spend municipal tax revenue in an area in order to promote city building objectives, just do it, right? You can simply approve a, uh, a tax increase and allocate appropriate budget during your budget conversations to do that exact thing. And then, and then make that case to, to citizens of Edmonton and taxpayers that this is a valid project, that there are valid city building objectives to build a more walkable, dense area that you want to invest in. Uh, and that's the simple way of going about it. To add in the tax increment financing is just simply a lot of extra administration uh, to basically do the same thing. We're still just going to be raising revenues. It's going to have the same ultimate effect on taxpayers. One of the advantages in people's minds of a CRL is that the new development in area pays for the investments we put into the area. And when you say we're going to raise taxes, we're increasing the tax rate. But if all this new development materializes, the base will grow so that the actual amount each household pays could be the same or less if everything works out. Not exactly. And I think that this is this is the bit where, you know, brains start getting muddled and exploded. And Anton and I may not even be on the same page with this one, but the way I look at it is we collectively as Edmonton property owners put our money into a pot to pay for all the great things that the city of Edmonton does for us. If we take a chunk of that base and put it aside and say, no, this is a special case and all the money that comes from any type of growth, be it market or real growth, is going to be used just to fund the, the very specific concerns of this area. What does that mean for the rest of the base when the base has to fund things like fire, things like roads, things like um, social services? You know, there, there are... There are city services that are that are funded, the majority of city services are funded from the general tax levy, from the general tax base. And when you create a CRL, you're kind of taking out of that base, even though those folks are still paying taxes and the taxes are going to their specific areas in the specific CRL. What they're not doing is contributing any um, any of that new growth, that new housing or, or those those new projects are not going to be contributing to the general tax levy, despite the fact that they're also using the services that the general tax levy funds. At least until the CRL period comes to an end, and then all of that tax revenue goes back into general. But we've done this three times. Isn't isn't this an effective way to do it? Like we we did this with Belvedere in the quarters and downtown. Why why couldn't we do it again? If it's if all we are is redirecting some of that money, but that supports something we'd like to do, like say, for example, encourage growth in the downtown, isn't that a tool we should look at? Right. And so, I mean, again, this, I think, goes back and this may be a, a, a very valid conversation between Kate and I when we're having these conversations. And the city chooses to invest all the time in certain areas when they decide to build an LRT. The value, value line LRT is going to benefit certain property owners more than others, even though we're going to be spending property taxpayer dollars on it. Mm -hmm. uh, building a rec facility center in a certain part of town is going to benefit those you know, citizens typically more often uh, than others. And so that's not entirely unusual. The point that we were making was that when new construction takes place in the city of Edmonton, 
we register growth revenue. And so that growth gets built into the typical budget anyway. Mm. And so why build in this convoluted system, this tax increment financing system, when you can just simply say, yep, we're going to spend money here and we're going to invest and the growth revenue will come and and we will uh, pay for it that way. So it just kind of was an unnecessary tool to achieve the outcome if that's in fact what they desire. And the reason, I, as I understand it, is because we got that cherry on top, the provincial education tax. And I just want to go back to that quickly because you indicated and the report indicated that the province has declined to create any more CRL since 2014. But has anyone actually tried? Yes. We're not the only um, municipality in Alberta. There have been municipalities that have taken a run at it. They saw CRLs do do great things in the CRL. Like that dedicated source of funding can be a very effective tool. And I think we see that in some of the CRLs that Edmonton has and, and in the um, Rivers District in Calgary in particular, which was, I think, the first CRL that was created here. Yep. Yep. Other municipalities have taken a run at it. They've looked at that success and they're like, yeah, we would like some of that action. And since 2014, uh, the province has not approved any new CRLs. You know, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't in the future, but the indications that we get is, you know, they're not particularly, they don't have a big appetite for that probably to do with their own fiscal situation, probably to do with their, they're trying to figure out their, their role in the ed tax piece as well. Anton posed the question, why would we use this tool when we already have a tool that does it? I do wonder, and Mac and I were talking before the show about this, if there isn't another possible outcome of a CRL, and that's binding future councils. Because we have the downtown CRL, we have the quarter CRL, we have the Belvedere CRL, and those projects can't be changed by the whimsy of council. We just this term, we had a couple councillors make a pretty significant run at cancelling Valley Line West. Would a CRL not have some sort of contractual and financial obligation for future councils to do what this current council wants? Recognizing the vague undemocraticness of what I'm suggesting, is that not a usage of a CRL? So I'd say yes and no in some ways, because, uh, you know, within an existing project, say that you don't have a CRL in place, if council were to upfront spend a capital expenditure, you've, you've built it, you got to pay it back, right? So that's happening regardless. So any kind of investment, say the, the bridge that was recently built across the river, right, you have to pay back that investment. So if council is choosing to spend on capital projects upfront, you kind of in some ways tie the rest of council's hands going forward because now you have that debt to pay off. Within a CRL area, yes, there is uh, kind of this locked in 20 year period of uh, the revenues go there. Although in one of your previous podcasts, you did point out there was a second condition, right? It's either the 20 year period or all the projects get paid off. And council could very well choose to stop approving projects, right? And then have that payoff take place faster. So yes, there is this kind of period that the money is locked in so long as council kind of chooses to keep wanting to spend more money in those areas. But if they stop spending money in those areas, they stop kind of investing, then as soon as that area, that investment is paid off, the CRL comes to a close. Why did a CRL work well for the downtown arena? I guess I should pose the first question. Did the CRL work well, in your opinion, for the downtown arena? And if it did, why would it work great in that area and not necessarily so well for the LRT? I would say that it, that all indications at this point point to, yes, the um, the downtown CRL being a successful use of CRL. 
I think that there are sort of many reasons why you you do see, for example, um, the Belvedere not being as successful. And one of the things I consider is the you know the the effect that we have on demand as a whole. So Edmonton, awesome city, attractive, but still constrained by normal forces of supply and demand. If the demand isn't there for things in Edmonton, then we're then we're basically dividing up a sort of fixed pie. So one of the things behind a successful CRL is can you attract growth? Can you attract more investment in this area that you wouldn't otherwise have seen? That is an almost impossible thing to determine. There's just so many factors involved. But like hypothetically speaking or philosophically speaking, if you can say that, then you've actually got a good reason for CRLs because like the CRL is by itself generating interest and generating its own income. If the alternative is true, which is there's a fixed amount of demand for growth and and investment within the city of Edmonton, what you do by creating many CRLs is start them competing against each other. So the incentive is true here, but the incentive here is even better. So we're going to take our money, you know, the Belvedere improvements are really great and we we like the look of them as a business. But hey, look, downtown has everything Belvedere has plus a bit more and we still get the benefits. Like that's sort of why I would caution council against trying to divide up their city into too many CRLs other than the the thing that we just that we talked about which is like the impact it has on the tax levy you you keep basically removing the growth revenue that we rely on every single year in order to help us reduce the amount of taxes we collectively pay as you as you start sort of putting those earmarked growth dollars elsewhere they're not available for the general tax levy so there's a couple of considerations there Anton, like, do you have thoughts on that one? Yeah, so I mean, that's all fair, Kate. That is one of those conversations about splitting up total revenues, also shrinking your assessment base, right? You have that much less assessment base available to pay your general levy. Sure, you're having new construction in those areas, new people are moving in, but they still require fire, police, the roads to be cleared. That gets paid by by the general levy, which means that area no longer is paying for that. Other areas are basically covering the bill for everybody else. Now, in the downtown one, the, the argument is made, right, that uh, it's an exciting place to be. And one of the problems in the past that was identified by the council that put the, CRO, the downtown CRO in place in the first place was the downtown has effectively been subsidizing the rest of Edmonton. And in that time, especially as we were growing out in kind of quite a suburban fashion, the downtown, which had the dense assessment value and, and the larger tax revenue, was subsidizing all that additional growth and all those services. And the mayor at the time made the case, it's time for us to reinvest in our downtown to make our downtown attractive to try to build. And and what our current mayor often says is, as goes downtown, so goes the rest of the city. So that if you can invest in your downtown and build that that interest, that helps uh, promote Edmonton as a whole. In listening to everything you've been saying, the idea of building a CRL across an LRT line, which is... 20 kilometers long seems dumb. Is that a fair comment to say that a CRL to be successful probably has to be relatively small? And when you're doing a CRL that spans basically corner to corner of the city, it's sort of just the wrong tool. So a good point to raise, right, which is that the downtown is where the high density residential and non-residential development is. So you're getting one tower built and suddenly you have two, three million dollars additional revenue that come in just from that one building. 
in these kinds of areas, yes, it's higher density, but you're talking about maybe four plexus, six plexus, things along those lines. It takes a lot more of that kind of stuff in order to raise a similar kind of revenue to pay for whatever you're looking for. So the cost of an LRT is quite large, and the amount of revenue you're going to raise to this particular tool is not necessarily going to be able to cover those costs. I mean, I have a different take on it, I think, based on what they were saying, Troy. To me, it almost sounds like you need something sexy in your CRL if you have any hope of attracting anything over and above what would have already come to you in the first place. So that's the bow building in the Rivers CRL. That's the arena in the uh, downtown CRL. And an LRT, while interesting to all of us, is is not the same thing. It's more like municipal infrastructure, like it's expected to be there. There's nothing particularly sexy to my mind about what's in Belvedere in that CRL, and maybe that's part of the reason why. Do, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that that is sort of out there and that's part of what's on the table here. I think it is interesting when you look at the Calgary Rivers District, the CRL is a nice little box except for this one kind of carbuncle it's got on its end that mm. is the bow building. And it was designed that way deliberately. It was like, yeah, this is where our growth revenue is going to come from and we're going to use this growth revenue to improve this area of, you know, the the this east end of Calgary that sorely needs investment. And I think that is a that's a great example of it, as is our downtown with the arena, with the sort of excitement that the arena and the, the buildings that were constructed kind of simultaneously brought about. I think that the interesting thing about the LRT discussion, though, is that without provincial appetite, what's the benefit? I, we may see growth. Um, I hope we really do see a lot of growth. It certainly would mimic other major cities in North America. When you when you build good transportation, people do want to uh, live close to and alongside it. But it, like ringing it in a CRL is not going to help pay for the LRT lines any more than just making it a budget line item and right. a funded project would. You've covered pretty well the CRLs and we, I'm just looking back at the notes for this episode and I got to say, what we had written was relatively antagonistic towards you guys. We we were unconvinced going into this that like, well, isn't the point of a CRL to spur new investment? But you've made a lot of really good points and convinced us. I want to jump back to something that Anton mentioned, which was that, you know, the downtown pre-CRL was subsidizing the rest of the city. And that also came up this week at council. It's been a tax week. And council was hearing about the potential of different residential subclasses so that maybe a single family home in Terwilliger might pay a different amount in taxes than a single family home in Hazeldine or in Glenora. Is that a good idea? Well, we can maybe speak to here whether or not it's a good idea that I really do leave to council to make those determinations, but we can talk to you about the policy implications or the policy concepts there, right? So when you're talking about subclasses, really, you're moving away from a pure market value-based system that allocates tax, uh, your, the, the tax distribution based on just the market value. Your ability to pay is measured by your property wealth. And you're saying, no, we don't something different to determine your cost allocation. And so you might very well make this subclass and say, look, we acknowledge, as has been pointed out through the, the Hempson report that was part of the city plan, the financial report that was explaining the value of density, that kind of the denser neighborhoods on a per capita basis 
are cheaper. I mean, they are more expensive overall, but on a per capita basis, amount of revenue bringing in, they can be cheaper in that perspective to maintain then very low density areas. And so perhaps we should reflect rather than just basing off of market value and your ability to pay, we want to add in a subclass to reflect the cost associated with maintaining these low density neighborhoods. And that's one of the conversations the council was trying to grapple with. Is that something we want to do? And where I think they got caught up a little bit and, and fair enough was, well, so what exactly should that differential be? And how do we base that off of you know, what percentage should that be? Where's our evidence to say, should it be 5%, 10%? What's the number? And so we were telling council that's the kind of work that is still to come. Oh, oh well, you know, I, I was, I was planning for a big gotcha, but yeah, okay, you're right. You probably do need to figure that out. Uh, just one point of clarification on it. They were discussing the possibility, I think, or the report talked about the possibility of either location based. So as Troy was explaining, you know, Windermere versus Hazeldean, or, or land use based, right? Which would maybe speak more towards single family versus multifamily properties. Is that right? Yeah. So when we talked about the different approaches, we talked about doing a location basis, kind of the original concept. Location based would be the idea of anything, let's say this is just an example, anything outside the Hende has a higher tax rate. Yeah. But pointing out there that we recognize even within those areas, there are still high density developments. And actually, in a lot of those neighborhoods, they are built at a higher density on average than some of our more mature neighborhoods. Right. Right. So it's can be it was much more complicated analysis than simply just drawing lines was kind of this very uh, nebulous area that would result in people who really were achieving council objectives or were you know living in higher density neighborhoods and therefore having lower costs for us in the city still paying a higher tax rate. So we kind of moved away from that location-based approach and said, let's look instead on a property-by-property property basis about how they're using that property, what we call a land-use approach. And so if it was a low-density property, a, a single detached home, uh, or even a duplex kind of that in that range, that kind of stuff would be considered low density. But you start getting into fourplexes, row housing, kind of mid rises and high rises, that would be the medium to high density stuff. And so for those kinds, we would, we would be looking at that analysis about, OK, this would if we gave a reduction in taxes to this, what would be the tax impact to the low uh, low density properties? So that, that all makes sense to me. And I think you're right to point out that there's more research to be done on this. But it strikes me that this whole notion is an effective tool to help bring the city plan to life. City plan is a policy. We've got some targets and some measures and some goals and a vision and all that kind of stuff. But it's it strikes me that it's tools like this where we're actually incentivizing or disincentivizing people moving in certain parts of the city that will actually allow us to achieve that vision. Do you think that's a fair statement? Unfortunately, no, I think it's a wishful thinking statement. I mean, we try to sort of uh, outline this in, in the report. For a person to change their behavior, like to make a decision about living in a density environment rather than a non-density environment, it's going to take a really big tax incentive to move that needle. And generally, we would be talking about a tax incentive that is so big, it will you know raise the flag across the city, if not across the province, and also might end up sort of having a counterintuitive effect. If you build an ultra-dense property and you get an even better tax rate as a consequence, then that property is going to become more desirable. And the, the price of that property or the, the market value of that property is going to increase commensurately as well. So you may be sort of effectively crowding out the benefit of your incentive. 
So our, our point to council is like, it's really difficult to be able to make a real determination about what does and does not incent behavior and taxes. Really, there's very little evidence that indicates that that taxes are the the make it or break it decision point. But there is also this really credible argument on, you know, a service side. If the sort of cost per capita is a lot lower for dense neighborhoods, then there automatically is a reason to do it. Whether or not there is also going to be a sort of an incentive for for city building. So I, I think that those are sort of the things that are in the mix when we're talking about you know, using property tax as an incentive tool. Um, in general, we caution against using tax as an incentive or disincentive simply because the more complicated a taxation system becomes, the more inaccessible it becomes. And one of the great things we have here in Alberta, believe it or not, is a very transparent property tax system <laughs> compared to a lot of j- jurisdictions across North America. Well, thanks for bursting my bubble on that. I mean, to me, the Venn diagram of people that are incentivized by free parking and lower taxes is a perfect circle. So I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced <laughs> that it wouldn't have some incentivizing effect, but I, but I take your point. Do the, do the math there, right? If you're talking about the same property in a low-dense neighborhood being worth maybe 400000 or even 350000 you try to buy that same property in an urban, dense area you're looking at a much higher price tag. And so that's going to yeah. really decide where you live, right. not a 10% tax difference. I guess the last question I'll throw out here is we've said that property tax, whether lowering or raising, probably isn't the right incentive. But we do have the city plan. We do have these goals and we do want to achieve these goals. And I do agree that services and you know maybe convincing through the services offered in a neighborhood is the best way to convince people. But at some point, we have to fund it. Like, you know, there's got to be bus services. There's got to be new LRTs that have capital costs. Is there a requirement for a new tax tool in the toolbox for Edmonton? Does Edmonton need a municipal sales tax? What, <laughs> what's what's next? What's the best way from a tax toolbox to achieve our goals that we can raise the revenues we need to build the city we want? I would personally be supportive of a municipal sales tax, it would definitely go some way to to helping broaden, you know, our sources of revenue. The chances of that happening for us are absolutely none. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we, we don't even have a provincial sales tax. So the, that the province would uh, bestow us with the benefit of being able to tax um, municipally on sales is, uh, is a little bit of a far-fetched dream. But, you know, who knows? Well, this has been very enlightening. Um, once again, you're some of my favorite guests to have on because I like to come on this podcast and speak with authority, even when I don't have it. And at least a couple times in this show, Mac and I, or I have said something and you're just like, eh, no, and really <laughs> laid out exactly why no. And I just, I very much appreciate it. And I know our listeners appreciate it. So I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Um, we want to leave you Anything you want to plug? Um, I don't know if the city has a new tax movie coming out that we can see in theaters, but pl- plug what you want to plug. Do not go to movies, folks. Like <laughs> until we've all got our vaccine. So uh, we we would like to take this opportunity to to use your platform to remind folks or let folks know that we have this new initiative that like within assessment and taxation, our branch we're really proud of. We have now got electronic notices up and running. They are legal. 
they are available and the interface uh, in order to be able to access all of your communications from assessment and taxation in Edmonton is actually a really, really, really good one. So the first thing to do is to go to the My Property portal, which you can get to through edmonton.ca slash assessment, and then go exploring in that website. Lots of really cool tools and information available. And then if you've got your code from your most recent assessment notice, you can sign yourself up for the, the website and also to receive information directly from us in your email. So you don't have to sit around waiting for, for us to snail mail stuff to you. I, I've done it personally and I love it. It's great. I'm very glad to have it. It's, I would rather have all of my municipal services like that digitally. Well, and not even just that they're sending the tax notices, which I appreciate, but there's also some really cool stuff on the My Property portal. Like it tracks your home value assessment with graphs based on the uh, average city assessment. It's pretty cool. Uh, like it's there's a lot of fun stuff to explore. So I will second your plug. Terrific. Yeah, the, the team worked incredibly hard to to set that up and, and make the sort of customer journey map as simple as possible. Understanding this is not necessarily everybody's favorite subject or even one that they feel is approachable. So we're really trying to make that website as user-friendly and as intuitive as possible. What are you talking about? I thought property tax was the most interesting topic of them all. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, guys. We'll get him into therapy. <laughs> um, well, thanks again for joining us. It was, as always, a joy to have you. Thanks. Sounds good. Yeah, it's been just like our city needs to be financed, so too does this podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local non-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Kate. And I'm Anton. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.